How's everybody doing today? Uh, good? Yeah. <laughs> so I've gotten a lot of questions over the last week just about Israel. You guys know that I've uh, spent a lot of time over there, done a lot of trips, and actually uh, we call it Israel, but also has the name Palestine. Uh, some, some part of the world calls it Palestine, other parts of the world call it Israel. The reason I say that is because what, what's transpired and is tra- that continues to transpire. It's, it's, it's tragic. It's sad. It's, it's very complex. And we as Christians need to just take the proper posture in this, which is why I bring up both the name Israel and Palestine. Uh, our role in this is not to take a side. Uh, and that applies to wherever there's conflict in our world. Um, Jesus uh, when he died, uh, he reconciled us to God, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 describes this, this amazing reality that because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we now have a specific ministry, and our ministry is that of reconciliation. And so as a kingdom of priests, it's our role uh, to stand in the gap uh, between where the two sides are against each other and to be agents of reconciliation. I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, um, but I'm calling us to this at the same time, that we would be that. And I'd say the best way we can be uh, agents of reconciliation is, first of all, by not taking sides, but by just being in prayer. Being in prayer, there's just so much hurt on both sides, and where our world hurts, that we would be God's people in prayer, um, just priesting on his behalf. So, Okay. We've begun this series on the book of Genesis. I think I told you two weeks ago, I was kind of just nervous to touch it. It's precious. And now that we're into it, there's no turning back, I guess. But so far, we've seen, I think, in chapter one and two, uh, how these chapters teach us first and foremost about God, who God is. Uh, he's the creator of the world. He's above the world that he creates. He's the ruler of the world. And yet he's also, from Genesis 2, that second creation account, intimately involved in the world. Now what I want to do is uh, not just keep moving to the next text. I want to slow down, and I want to also look at these texts and ask the next important question, what, what do they say about us? Who are we, according to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Or maybe I could ask it this way. What is a human? Do you know? How would you answer that question if someone asked you, what is a human? And see, this this question is not insignificant because really how you answer that question will deeply affect not only how you view yourself, but also how you view every person that you encounter, and frankly, it'll affect your view of every aspect of the world. And really, the confusion over this simple question today, to me, it's staggering. I mean, if you're wondering why there's so much confusion over what is a human, or even take that further, what is a man, what is a woman, Uh, My simple answer is we've tossed out Genesis 1 and 2. 
Listen to what Stephen Hawking says. Stephen Hawking is a person that we're all very familiar with. He's probably the greatest physicist of our time. He's the most well-read thinker of our day. His books have sold just millions upon millions of copies. And at at Cambridge University, one of his famous uh, speeches on human origins, this is what he said. He said, yes, we've been designed. We have been designed, but since we don't know what the design is, we may as well not be. And then he says, my only fear for mankind is this. In fact, he says, it's the terror that stalks my mind at night, is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of natural selection, and natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means that we are here, we have arrived here because of our aggression. And then he says, my hope is that somehow we can keep from eating each other up for the, for the next 100 years because hopefully at that point, science will have devised a scheme to take us to various planets of the universe and no one atrocity will be able to destroy all of us at the same time. That's Stephen Hawking. You know, let, me, let me just ask this basic, basic question. If our origin is essentially an accident, And our destiny has no meaning. So our origin has no meaning. Our destiny has no meaning. Tell me how everything bookend between that can have meaning and purpose. And people today, they they wonder why there's so much despair, hopelessness, anxiety, why there's so much fear, why so many people are running and hiding and medicating in fact, I don't even notice if you've noticed our, our, our latest fascination with zombies or this zombie apocalypse. Uh, could it be that we just fear this is what the human is becoming? I mean, when you look at all the human numbing and diminishing, the shrinking and shriveling through the blank stares at screens hours every day to injections of mind-numbing substances, Humanity is becoming very zombie-like. And yet what we have in our hands today is Genesis, the very words of God, telling us not only who we are, what we are, where we've come from, but also the great purpose to our existence. Let's stand and read Genesis chapter 1. Starting with verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human in his own image In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. 
and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I'll give you every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then reaching into Genesis 2, the second creation account, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This is God's word. You can be seated. I first want us to see how day six begins differently than any of the other days. The other days all begin with, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Uh, But day six begins with, and then God said, verse 26. And it's also the only time where God announces what he is about to create. So the narrative itself is letting us know that something huge is about to take place. And if you've ever been to a great performance or even a great fireworks show, you know that they always uh, move towards this great climax at the end called the grand finale. And that's exactly what's going on here in the creation of the world in Genesis 1 as creation is nearing its completion, it's all building to this grand finale. And what is the grand finale? Then God said, let us make humans in our image and according to our likeness. So if the first creation account, the climax of creation is the creation of Adam, we're also gonna see as we study this book in the second creation account, The climax of creation is the creation of woman, of Eve. Now, here's where we have to ask, who is Adam? Uh, Because in verse 26 and verse 27, uh, the word in Hebrew for mankind is Adam. And Adam simply means human. So later, Adam will become the actual name given to the man, but here we need to see the word simply means human or humankind. So if you remember uh, how creation is depicted in Genesis 1, where God first forms, then he fills uh, with all of this just uh, amazing uh, symmetry to to how God is moving into the formless uh, emptiness and and forming and and filling. God first forms the expanse and then fills it with planets and galaxies and stars, and then he forms the skies, and he fills it with uh, these amazing uh, creatures that fly above, and then he forms the sea and the land and then fills the sea with sea creatures and fish and fills the land with plants, vegetations, and trees that bear fruit, and then animals and all their variety, and then every living creature that God uh, forms. 
God says about it, and it was made according to its kind. And it was made according to its kind. And it was made according to its kind. And now we come to this final climactic grand finale, and God is going to form something according to his kind. In fact, that's what likeness means here. It means when God said, let us make us a uh, uh, a creature that's, that's formed uh, according to our image and our like, uh, likeness. It's, let's make something like us. And so Adam is, is a creature that mirrors God, is a reflection of God. In fact, uh, in Hebrew, the word for image is the Hebrew word selim. And it simply means to be chiseled out. Or it can mean a statue, or it can mean a shadow. So think about what's conveyed here, that we are made in, in, in the image of God, that, that the human is a little statue of God, this little miniature of God, that we are God's shadow, his reflection. And I think even just to think about this is amazing. But then when you think about this through Genesis 2, the second telling of creation, and if you were here last week, uh, Trigg showed us, you know, he contrasted the, who God is in the second telling of creation versus the first telling. The first telling, uh, God is this transcendent, all-powerful God who is above and beyond the world that he makes. Uh, the second telling, though, God is not just this God who's way out there, but he's a God who comes near, who is personal. In fact, even he now has his personal name, Yahweh. And listen to chapter uh, 2, verse 7. It says, in Yahweh, God formed the human Adam from the dirt of the ground. And the word ground here in Hebrew is the word Adamah. And so Adam is formed from the Adamah, thus the word earthling, uh, because <laughs> That's what we were created from. We were created from the earth. We were created as God. We're created by God. We're created to be like God, but we're still dirtbags. <laughs> okay, we can't forget that. We're, we're literally created from the mud, from the clay. And, and, and when you're reading this, God being so close, personal, it's almost like you can envision God's hands going into the ground and taking that mud into his hands and shaping that modern clay into a miniature just like himself. And then this week, I, as I'm studying the Hebrew, I just uh, found out something that to me is just stunning. Um, in the Hebrew text, there's actually an anomaly here, a misspelled word. It's the word formed. God formed Adam. And it's the word yatzer in Hebrew, in Genesis 2, verse 19, the same word is used there, and it's there it's spelled correctly. But it would be like if, if we came to our English text and all of a sudden the word formed had two Fs. <laughs> We'd be just like, what's going on here? Like, why hasn't someone corrected this? But this mistake goes all the way back, and it, it's never been corrected the letter Y, because you have two Ys here, the letter Y is the Hebrew letter Yud. And the letter Yud is also their word for hand. In fact, the letter even looks like a hand. 
So the way the Jewish people understand this, that when God formed us, he didn't do it just one yud. He did it with two yuds. Both his hands went into the ground, into the clay, and he formed us. Does that move you? That's a game changer. That's why Psalm 119.73 says, your hands made me and formed me. Isaiah 64 verse 8, yet you, Lord, are our father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are the work of your hand. If you're like David and you know Genesis 1 and 2, that's why you can say things like he says in Psalm 139, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your work is wonderful. I know that too well. Do you know this? Do you live every moment of every day knowing this? that you're not an accident, that you're not the sum total of time plus matter plus chance, that you're not some itty-bitty cog in a big machine, that you're not just another life form slugging it out in a survival of the fittest world, that you were made by God, by his very hands. And God loves what he has made. He loves what he has made. Not only is Adam formed by God, but like all creation, he's filled by God. And what's he filled with? It says, and God breathed into Adam the breath of life. God breathes his very breath into, into Adam. In fact, breath here is the Hebrew word neshema, and neshema is the closest word in Hebrew to our English word soul. So what God is literally breathing into Adam is his soul, his spirit into that clay statue. And that clay statue that looked like God became a living thing, a human being. And so we have to understand that, that Adam is breathing more than just oxygen in his lungs, that the air that he is breathing is God himself because he's been made to breathe God, to be filled with God. And this is what a human being is, in essence. A human is someone who's made by God, who's made like God and made to be filled with the breath of God. And see, in this, we are contingent creatures. We are derivative or another way of putting this, we are not our own. We are not autonomous. But we belong in body and soul to God himself. We are entirely dependent on God to the extent that as much as our bodies right now need oxygen, our souls need to breathe God. And I know to, 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 to try to imagine an incorruptible human like Adam is an impossibility for us right now because we've grown so accustomed to our fallen state, we've forgotten how far we have fallen. And this is something that we'll look, look at more in Genesis 3 
And as we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to see what God is going to do about this tragedy of our fall. But what I want us to know today is that this, whatever happens in Genesis 3, does not cancel out Genesis 1 or Isaiah 64 or Psalm 119, that every, every person ever conceived has been formed by God, by God's very hands to be like God, to be made in his image, little statues, shadows of God who reflect their creator. Did you wake up this morning with those thoughts in your mind? That that's who you are. That's what you are. Now all of this does beg the question then, if we're, if we're made in God's image, then who is this God whose image we bear? And what we know from Genesis 1 already is that God being the creator of the universe, uh, that, that God is the one who made it and he stands above it and, and over it, that he is the world, the universe's king. He rules it. So to be made like God in God's image, it, it, it starts here. And that's right in our text, made in God's image. Why? Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the, of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and, and over all the creatures that move along. So God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the purpose for why we are made, to rule. It's why we've been made in God's image. It's to have dominion over this incredible world that God created. On the ancient world, kings made images of themselves, little statues of themselves, sometimes big, huge statues of themselves. They placed them throughout the region that they ruled because they thought that the very image of the gods is, is what they were made to be or, or the very image of the Lord of the gods. And, and, and so the, the implication of statues of whether it's king, pharaoh, emperor, um, it, it's, it's to say that all dominion, all authority belongs to me. We read about this in Daniel chapter 3, that statue of King Nebuchadnezzar that he set up for the whole empire to bow down and worship. That 90-foot statue was a statue of himself. And the pharaohs in, in Egypt put statues of themselves everywhere, big, small. I mean, you could hardly go anywhere without seeing some image of Pharaoh. And it was to say that all authority, all power, all dominion belongs to me. And now you have this people who are coming out of Egypt who have had that just stamped on their brains that the Pharaoh is the one who bears God's image. And God now introduces himself to them and says, let me tell you now who you are. You are the king. You are the queen. All of you, you're all made by me in my image to rule and to have dominion. 
Did you wake up this morning thinking of yourself as a king? That God made you to be a queen? David, again, in Psalm 8, I know what's going on with him because I've had one of these, I've had these experiences many times in my life, even going back to when I was a little kid, raised in the country, you could look up at night and you could just see the starry host. And that feeling of just being, being able to just look up and, and, and to see the stars and, and, and what it does to you, it's, it, it, it causes you to just say, God, in light of all of this, how great you are. Like, what am I? Who am I? This is exactly what, what, what David is doing. He's, he's looking up at the stars. He's saying the moon, the stars, everything that you created, God, like, who am I? What am I? And then his mind goes to what he knows. He knows Genesis 1 and 2. He says, God, you have, you have made humans a little less than Elohim. Elohim, we translate angels. The problem with that translation is that Elohim means God. And David says, in light of your greatness, God, you have made human, just a little less than yourself. You have crowned human with glory and honor. You have put all things under his feet from the birds in the air to the fish in the sea to the animals on the land. And then he says, oh Lord, my God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is who God made us to be. This is our place in the world. We are made as kings and queens to rule and to have dominion over everything that God has made. Now, people today get freaked out by this word dominion. And that's actually fair because a lot of people have taken this word dominion to mean conquest. We've confused dominion with domination. And then this is then giving people license to just go out and trash the earth. The Bible never speaks of dominion in terms of conquest. It always speaks of dominion in terms of stewardship. In fact, even when you look at God and how God exercises dominion, I mean, just think about the kingdom that Christ came and proclaimed. Dominion never was about a lording over. It really is more of a lording under uh, through serving and supporting in fact, when you look at the king of God's kingdom, Christ, and how he selflessly cared for and how he empowered and how he disadvantaged himself to bring about wholeness and flourishing, it wasn't dominion ever uh, with Christ through conquest. Instead, he brought shalom by laying down his life for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave up. He gave up himself. And we're made like God. We're made in God's image. We're we're made to rule like God, reflecting his character, his love, his Christ. Which means we ought to be the most robust proponents of the environment. Okay? I can't believe I didn't hear an amen there. I'll give you guys another chance on that because I know it's in your heart. We ought to be the most robust proponents of the environment. 
We ought to be the best stewards of every inch of God's creation, from vegetation to rivers, forests, lakes, animals. And we don't do this out of fear because of something called global warming. We do this because this is our Father's world. And he has made us in his image to be in charge, to rule, to care for, to nurture, to cause every facet of his creation to flourish for his glory. Are you doing that? Are you ruling the itty pity, the small part of God's world that he has entrusted to you for his glory? Your body, are you stewarding it? Your money, your time, your sphere of influence. Are you using all that God has entrusted to you to, to advantage others, to bring about a flourishing, to bring shalom to chaos? This is what it means to be a king. This is what it means to be a queen, to be made in God's image and in his likeness. We're called to rule in this way. And also being made in God's image doesn't just speak to rule, but I think even more importantly to relationship. Because I don't know if you noticed this, but when God said, let us make humans in our image, who's the us? <laughs> and, and why is it the plural our image? See, we know that God in Genesis is dispelling all polytheistic notions. I mean, he isn't this God among many gods. He is God alone. He's the only God. Now, I've heard some recent theologians suggest that when God says, let us make, that he is uh, taking counsel with the heavenly courts, with the angels. But here's the problem with that idea. Uh, we're not made in the image of the angels. We're made in the image of God. But see, what we have is a whole Bible that can help us make sense of the plural here. And really, I think it takes the whole Bible to tease out what I think is the most amazing characteristic about, about God. And that God is triune. He's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is in and of itself utterly unique. And yet in their own right, each is still God. And yet so intimate and interconnected and harmonious are they that we can say three persons, yet one God. We just sang it. And so the biblical narrative, when you read it, it doesn't show us a God that's faceless or this all-powerful abstraction like Star Wars. Let the force be with you. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in this joyous and passionate fellowship. The inner life of God is relationship, this explosive relationship, this community of persons not seeking their own glory, but selflessly bringing glory to the other, delighting in and adoring the other, pouring love, infinite amounts of it into the other, forming this union that's so complete that we can still say, one God. Now, while you're trying to make sense of all of that, what this means is something stunning. 
Christianity is the only religion, it's the only worldview that claims love existed before life. But this abundant love within the community of the Trinity preceded the creation of the world. And therefore, because love came first, it's love that initiated the creation of our world. That before God's hands went into the mud to form Adam, his heart was exploding first with love for this creatures his hands were about to make. I mean, what is it about the Pinocchio story that moves us? And Spielberg uh, has his own rendition of, of, of this as well. It, with Pinocchio, it's, it's, it's the fantasy that this little puppet Pinocchio can actually become real if someone would just love him. He says, if I, I can be a real boy, if I could have an owner, a mom and a dad who would love me. And you see, in the Pinocchio story, it's, it, it's love that makes something unreal become real, something soulless actually become alive. And listen, if this is just a tale about the power of human love, think about how much more this is true about the power of God's love. It's God's love that caused the world to be, that caused us to be. It's God's love that makes us real. We have an owner. We have a father who lavishes his love upon us that when we receive it, a heart of stone can become a heart of flesh. And see, when we don't know this love or we don't have this love, Humanity just shrinks and shrivels up into pretentiousness and hypocrisy and it diminishes into something zombie-like. Yet Paul, whose religious heart of stone was melted by this love, says in Ephesians 3, he says, for this reason I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, that you, church, would have the power to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Do you know this love? Because if you don't, seek it. Seek it with everything you have until you find it. And the only place where this love can be found is in your maker who calls himself father. His hands formed you because he loves you. And you can't possibly know what it means to be human, to know life to the fullest until you know this love. But the Trinity also helps us understand and, and even more than understand, but celebrate, that is unity within diversity. Because within the Trinity, the Father is unique from the Son and the Spirit. The Son is unique from the Spirit and the Father, and yet they're still the same God. 
And God, as he creates the world, is already bringing this unity and diversity to bear upon his creation. Every animal is unique. Every tree is unique. No one is alike, and yet they're all created according to their kind. And now God does this with humanity. Verse 27, he creates Adam, the human. And he creates human, male and female. You have two Genders, both genders are created in God's image. And I know some of you are saying, wait a second, isn't God male? Well, when the pronouns are used of God in the Hebrew, they're masculine. However, the ruach, the word for spirit in the Hebrew, the third person of the Trinity is always feminine. So God uses both male and female terminology to describe his nature. And this means something incredible. Just like father is distinct from son and spirit, so are male and female distinct from each other. Our genders are distinct. Male and female are unique from each other. We're not the same, and yet in our uniqueness, we're both created in God's image. We both share the same status, and it takes two genders to reflect the very God of whose image we bear. That's, that's incredible. And our culture today is, is throwing out Genesis and embracing evolution. It has no basis to, to differentiate male from female or to even limit the options to male and female. In fact, it can't really differentiate even a human from an animal. It can't give an answer to what is a human? What is a man? What is a woman? In fact, sameness has now become the definition of equality, so to be equal, we all need to be the same, which now you're throwing out diversity. And more and more, this is even the sameness is extending to the animal world. I mean, if this is your frame of thought, you have no basis for diversity of races or cultures because uniqueness and distinctiveness are seen as a threat to equality. We all need to be the same. But God is a God of diversity, the diversity of races and cultures. And the uniqueness uh, between a male and a female, it's all part of the beauty and the glory of God's creation. And it's all created to reflect his image. Which is why Christians ought to be a people who most celebrate diversity. And not who just celebrate this idea of diversity, but seek to live into diversity knowing that diversity reflects God in the goodness of his world. Do you do that? Are we doing that? Are we living into it? And I want us to see that, that, that if evolution is your answer for how we came to be, <laughs> you need to think out the implications of that. You now no longer have basis for human rights. You have no basis for human worth and human dignity. Evolution is survival of the fittest, as Stephen Hawking said, natural selection requires natural rejection. 
Think about abortion. Abortion is essentially that. It's the strong rejecting the most vulnerable. Even social justice today is not about justice. It's just become a weapon of power used by the powerful to wield power. And in this, the weak are oftentimes used and exploited as pawns. Look at what Genesis tells us. Every human ever conceived is one fashioned by God with his own hands. Every human is an image bearer infused by God with God's very dignity and glory. This is why justice matters to God. This is why realities like racism and sexism, classism violate God and betray his heart. This is why for the Christian, every single person we ever encounter or ever think about, we need to think, Imago Dei, that that person is made by God, made like God, made a little less than God, crowned by God with glory and honor, which is why even when things enter our heart like hatred, how hatred itself severely violates God, it's an offense to God. This is why Jesus says, if you even just call someone a moron, that's murder because you're destroying someone, something that God's hands have created with your very words. James, in James 3 verse 9 says the same thing. He says, how can a mouth that praises God curse someone made in God's image? To curse someone violates the inherent worth and dignity that God placed in that person. It betrays God. It's an offense to God. Just like we sing here a lot, God's heart. His heart is in everything he has made. And think about that heart as it's expressed through the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, selflessly bringing glory to one another, existing to exalt one another. And this is what we are made to be like. And if you want to see what a human is supposed to be, look at Christ. He came to Adam's helpless race to restore us, to repair us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, to to fill us with the breath of life, his spirit, and then consider how he did it. Do you know what day Jesus was crucified? The sixth day, Friday. In fact, it's on the sixth day that Pilate says, behold the man. Because there stands in Christ the ultimate human, the perfect image of God, all beaten and bloody and about to be crucified. And he's going to selflessly give up every ounce of his glory so that he can restore us to our former glory. And this is the heart of God. It's who God is. And it's who we are made to be. We're made by him. We're made for him. We're made to be like him. Do you remember when they brought that coin to Jesus and they asked him, Jesus, are we to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responded, well, whose image is on that coin? Caesar's, they said. And Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar. But then Jesus makes his main point. He says, but give to God that which is God's. And if someone that day in the crowds would have asked, well, what, what is it that we give to God's? He would have looked at that person and says, whose image do you bear? Give to God that which is God's. 
God has formed us. He has filled us for a purpose, for massive purpose, to be kings, to be queens that reflect him, that move into the chaos of our world, bringing order and shalom and causing a world that God so loves to flourish for God's glory. And church, we must, we must, we must become a tribe that knows this, that knows Genesis 1 and 2, so we can know who we are, what we are, whose we are, so we can live into God's heart and be God's heart to a world that desperately needs God. That God, I just cry out to you this simple prayer. May it be so. God, may it be so. May all that you're saying here burn in our hearts. May we know it. God, may we be like you in a world that desperately needs you for your glory. Amen.